Chapter 17, leaders can struggle the most with the new. One of the key instruments that God uses every time he wants to make a change is leadership. We constantly see throughout the Bible leaders being used by God to see his will and purposes established on the earth. He sent the greatest leader in his son to bring an incredible shift and change where through Christ the Holy Spirit would now reside in the hearts of all his followers, as opposed to the few chosen ones from the book of Genesis to Malachi. Leaders are used by God as change agents, and so it is quite ironic that leaders can struggle the most when it comes to change. You might be thinking right now that surely I've made a typo. I think you meant to say it's Jesus' followers who struggle the most with change. Yes, I agree with you that many followers also struggle with change, but I carry a personal conviction that many leaders struggle the most with change and can be the greatest obstacle and enemy of change. For many leaders, what we fear is the perceived associated loss that comes with change, and yet when in Christ there is no loss, only gain. Ask yourself this question. When Jesus came to earth to realign things and declare the kingdom of his Father, who were his greatest opponents, and where did his greatest opposition come from? It didn't come from the sinners and tax collectors or the prostitutes. It didn't come from the Roman Empire but it came from his own people. It came from those who were in leadership. It came from Israel, and yet Jesus came to save Israel. It came from the leadership of the day. Many in the Sanhedrin were vehemently against Christ, and it was these leaders that had him crucified. When Pontius Pilate was willing to release him, it was these leaders that screamed the loudest and rallied everyone else to scream, crucify him. It is interesting how Saul was David's greatest enemy. And even though David loved Saul and honored him as king, even at the possible cost of his own life, this still didn't change Saul's stance on David. Saul couldn't handle the fact that it was a new day, and this young man was going to be used by God to bring in a new order. Rather than getting behind David and encourage him to be all he could be in the Lord, we see Saul living in fear, pride, insecurity, jealousy, and rage at the fact that this young man was going to be king. Why is it that leaders can struggle the most when God is doing a new work of revealing more of himself and his ways to his people? Why do leaders resist and many are not even interested to listen to anything outside of their current level of understanding? There are many answers to this question, but the root issue is we simply do not know him well enough. We don't know what we don't know. And because we don't know what we don't know, we don't have a passion for what we don't know. This causes us to look beyond our sphere of reference. Because we don't know him well enough, we do not love him enough to take the time out to seek him and ask him whether this new sound that we are hearing is of him or someone's vivid imagination. Love takes the time to investigate. Unlike Moses, we don't take the time to turn aside and see why the bush isn't burning up even though the flames are screaming at us. Exodus 3, 2-4. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burnt up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Moses was prepared to turn aside from what he was doing and where he was going and move towards this illogical reality that he could see. 
This picture, this sound made no logical sense to him, but he was prepared to stop and take time out of his day to ask, seek, and knock about what he was seeing. These words are fascinating. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him. The Lord responded and called to him when Moses turned aside to look. If Moses hadn't turned aside to look, what would have happened? Would his day have just been continued as normal, shepherding the sheep, and he is no wiser or better off than before? Look what comes out of this turning aside to see. The mission of Moses comes out of this turning aside to see. I wonder how many works of God are missed in our lives because we don't turn aside to see what we consider illogical or irrational. Moses didn't make this mistake. Why didn't Moses make this mistake? Because Moses had spent 40 years in the wilderness being humbled from the person he was to becoming the man of God that was shaping him into. Moses was a man in transition. All of the Egyptian ways he had learned now needed to be surrendered to the Father's ways. This death process would create the spirit of humility in the man. Numbers 12 to 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any other man who was on the face of the earth. Having an ever-increasing knowledge of God the Father within us means we are constantly having an increasing measure of the Father's love being revealed in us which forms and shapes the spirit of humility within us. This has us desiring God and his ways more and more, especially the parts of him that are unknown and outside of our current reference point. Those who are humble in spirit have this overflowing, abundant kingdom life being established within them, and they live from this life. Hence Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Being prepared to go on the journey of discovery. Are we prepared and willing to go on a journey of the Spirit as leaders to find out for ourselves whether what is being spoken is in fact God, even if this journey yields no fruit? This was the type of man Moses was as one of God's leaders. I wonder, are we? For many leaders and followers of Jesus, what we don't understand we tend to shy away from or just sweep under the carpet and hope it will all go away. It makes us feel uncomfortable because we don't understand it. Many of us don't like mystery or the unknown because it starts to expose where our faith is truly at. So we can tend to respond as leaders in a number of ways to this new dimension that we are hearing or seeing. We can do anything from rejecting, attacking, speaking against, ignoring, burying our head in the sand, distancing ourselves, justifying it away, and completely moving away from this new reality being spoken of. If this is our first response and only response as a leader or follower, then I believe this is a clear indicator and sign of someone who doesn't know and love God enough to take the time out to pursue whether this is in fact God or not. I am married to Danielle and have been for the past 14 years. I found that I have come to know more about her than what I did when we first got married. And the longer our relationship goes on, the more I will come to know her. Imagine if I picked up a book about her that had been written by someone who knew her more than I did, and this person is sharing a reality about Danielle that I have no clue about. The reality declared by this person about Danielle sounds very foreign to me and very unfamiliar to the Danielle that I know. Would I be interested enough because of my love for Danielle to want to know if what this person is writing about my wife is in fact actually true? Do I love her enough to want to know all things about who my wife is 
and what is important to her? Or am I happy with the Danielle that I currently know? The thing is, I am not sure if what is written about my wife is in fact true, but I do. I love her enough to stop what I am doing and go on a journey of discovery to see if what is being shared is who she is, even if what is being said is a whole lot of rubbish. Certainly, if what is being written about her is true, this will enhance our relationship to no end because I will know her more intimately than what I currently do. And this will draw us much closer than we currently are. The love I have for her will be enhanced through this greater knowledge of her as a person, and this will determine how I live. If I took the time out and went on a journey to seek out what was being said was true, what would that tell you about my love for Danielle? If I couldn't be bothered to seek out if what was being shared about Danielle was true, and I was content with the Danielle I knew, what would this tell you about my love for Danielle? This analogy is a true reality today and always has been between God and his people. Do we actually love him enough to want to know all about him? Even when knowing all about him may cause us to have to change some of the ways we think, some of the thoughts we have believed to be true about him, and some of the ways we operate or even the way we lead others. This, I think, for many leaders becomes the scary question. Am I prepared for the answers that may come? And am I prepared to act out whatever these answers mean for me and those I lead? If our purpose, our identity, our reason for living, our trust, our faith, our understanding, our reliability, and our foundation is in anything else other than Jesus, then the chances of us asking ourselves these questions will be slim. And the chances of us doing anything about these answers will be even slimmer. Old and new wineskins. The Bible talks about wine and wineskins and how the new wine cannot be poured into an old wineskin because of three reasons. Luke 5, 37-39. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. Firstly, the new wine will burst the old skin. Secondly, the new wine will be spilled out and wasted. And thirdly, the skins that are old will be ruined. The old wine skin has become rigid and stiff. It has become hardened and is no longer supple and flexible. And so it would burst when the life of the new wine is poured into it. As leaders, God wants to reveal in us more of himself and his ways and how he builds his church. But if he doesn't find a pliable, soft, subtle, flexible, broken and contrite heart in which to pour this fresh wine of himself into, then he doesn't. Because he knows this wine will be spilled out and the vessel, us, will be ruined. God loves us too much to allow this to happen, so he holds back. Verse 38 is fascinating, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. The key word is must. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. There is no other way. It doesn't matter how much we try doing it another way or coming up with other ways. The only way to receive the new wine is to have a new wineskin. And having a new wineskin requires maintaining a broken spirit, a contrite heart, a faithful hope-anchored, love-centered dependence on and in Christ. 
Maybe the reason some of us have settled and maybe failed to come into a greater dimension of God in us is because this broken spirit, this contrite heart isn't present. And the thought of it being formed and shaped in us is all too scary and hard. We know it would mean letting go of our ability to be in control. And this is just too much for us. So we settle for the old because the old is good enough. And we convince ourselves this is a good thing. Some of the religious leaders of Christ's day had an opportunity to receive a greater dimension of truth and to come into the abundant life that Christ offered. Some were humble enough to turn and discover this new life in Christ, while others resisted and maintained their current ways of being and living, eventually crucifying the one who is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is our current reality today, where God is looking for leaders in his body who he can pour more and more of himself out and into. Leaders he can use and work with to see his church built upon the earth his way and for his purposes now and in the future. Leaders either shut off or release the new. As leaders, without realizing it, we can find ourselves shutting down or resisting something that God wants to do in us personally and in the lives of those we lead. I want to share the story of Bartimaeus as an example of this reality. When Bartimaeus called out at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, because he wanted to receive healing for being blind, those who were leading the way sternly told him to be quiet. Luke 18, 38-39. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Did we capture these words? Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. These words are coming out of the mouths of those leading the way. And did we also notice it's not one person saying this, but a number of people who are leading and speaking this reality. Sternly telling someone to be quiet is aggressive in nature. It's not like a loving parent asking their children to be a bit quieter because they are making a wee bit too much noise, but it is a severe command to close one's mouth. In other words, shut your mouth. Why is it those who are leading that are the ones telling him to sternly be quiet? Don't those leading the way that know that Jesus can and wants to bring a new reality to this man who is calling out? Jesus can bring this man into a reality that he has never, ever been in before. And yet those leading the way sternly tell him to be quiet. Is it a possibility that those leading the way in this passage have their own perceived agenda in their leading? And this man is getting in the way of this agenda. He is an inconvenience to them. And he is getting in the way of where they are going with Jesus. If left to their own devices, those leading the way would have completely walked past this man, leaving him in a state of blindness, and they would have been none the wiser for what Jesus wanted to do. I wonder how many leaders today find themselves in this state. Do we have ears to hear what Jesus is saying and doing today in the church? Or are we like these leaders telling others sternly to be quiet because we perceive them to be getting in the way of our leading? What I love about Bartimaeus was that he would not let those leading the way prevent him from receiving what he knew was possible in Christ. He knew Jesus could bring him into this newfound reality, and he cried out all the more. And Jesus heard his cry. Jesus heard the frequency of faith being declared and commanded that Bartimaeus be brought to him. 
even though those who were leading were trying to prevent him coming into this new reality. That those leading the way realized that by trying to shut this man up, they would be getting in the way of what Christ was prepared to do for Bartimaeus? Probably not. And I imagine after this healing, there would have been some serious repentance taking place and a serious dose of, of spiritual-led humility being birthed into the hearts and minds of those who had tried to shut him up. My prayer for myself as a leader and for other leaders in the body of Christ is that we would all maintain a humility about us. This humility of spirit would define our openness towards the Father's leading, his guiding, and his teaching of us as his sons. Jesus came to earth to lead people to the Father and to make his Father known. And as leaders of Christ, I believe we too have been given the same mandate. May we walk and live this mandate out with all humility and be the demonstration of this wisdom to all of those people God has called us to lead. Conclusion. This book, Bird's Eye View, has been a year in the making. It is my attempt to put down on paper what the Father has been revealing in me over the last five years. The things written in this book have come as I have walked these things out with God and allowed Him to build His life in me. This book is about seeing from a higher view, God's view, and living our lives now from His perspective and lens. Colossians 3, 2 says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. I remember going with Danielle to Dreamworld in Australia some time ago and going up on the Tower of Terror. We were taking 39 stories up into the air where we were to wait for a period of time before this machine would plummet us at 100 miles an hour to the ground, all in the name of fun. While waiting at 39 stories and enjoying our time up there, the view was incredible. The things we could see were breathtaking. We could look to our right and see the Gold Coast, and we were able to roughly work out where we were staying, while to look to our left brought into view the city of Brisbane. Our ability to see things at this height enhanced our experience, and we were able to see things much more clearer. My hope is that for those who read this book, it will speak to your spirit and confirm some of the things that the Holy Spirit has already been speaking to you about, which will enable you to see more clearly. We stayed at this height for at least a minute or two and got to have a good look around before the inevitable drop. I will always remember this as a breathtaking experience. God wants to literally take our breath away with the things he wants to show us about himself and the life he longs for us to come into and experience in him. He doesn't want this to just be for one or two minutes, but for eternity. The End